Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, we have two Lords of Limited, yet we have three Mythic Ranks among us. Would you care to explain to our listeners and myself why you have betrayed the Lords of Limited community here? I told you last week, I, I admitted that I had a problem. I, I had a dirty secret, and I told you I was playing, I'd been playing Constructed, and I wanted to get to Double Mythic, and I did it. So I think you should be applauding my accomplishment. And as well as I am applauding yours, that push to Mythic during your fall break week. Nicely done. Yeah, absolutely. I will say I have a respectable bronze for Constructed rank. Yeah, is, that is respectable. You know what's, what's great? You go up two pips, because it's best of three. So it's like you have to play half the games, you know? Ooh, that is nice. Yeah, so I did make my, my final push to uh, to Mythic and Constructed this week, um, but we do not need to talk about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what what Now that you've gotten a lot more best of one reps under your belt, I mean, I know that you, you had felt early on with just like, I'd say like maybe after half a dozen best of one drafts that you thought that they were pretty different and I had not felt that way. Do you still feel like best of one and best of three are, are markedly different in this format? I do, mostly because I think best of one is just artificial magic it's just the opening hand smoother and it's not even best of one that bothers me it's the opening hand algorithm that just makes it so that people curve out every game and you're just mashing stuff into each other i think it turns every format into that now i will say i have like because of the smoother games are tough when you have you know good decks in diamond or good decks in platinum squaring off against each other you're throwing haymakers you and your opponent at each other and you know i have played some doozies of games but it just doesn't feel right to me when both people curve out all the time. I don't know what else to say about it, but it, it is noticeable to me that that's happening. So I would agree that that is a, a factor. Is that changing then any of your draft considerations or deck building considerations or card evaluations? Not my draft decisions so much. It is changing. Like I want my curve to be low. So I guess it changes it in that sense. But I mean, I guess I'm trying to always skew that way anyway. I don't know. After after grinding a mythic, here are the, here are the keys to best of one. Ben Warney's keys to best of one. Great. I think all of your decks need to have these traits. I think one, you need to be able to make sure that you curve out well consistently. Like You have to have a good curve. Two, I think you have to have ways to grind into the late game, like Tazim Royal Mages, Blood Beckonings, like that sort of loopty doopty stuff is powerful. Or, you know, you have like a Niav aggro deck with ways to pick up your MDFCs. You have to have some sort of late game power as well. And then three, you need to be able to interact with your opponent in multiple ways, getting things off the battlefield. Like removal is, you know, in best of three, I think you can get away with a deck with no removal, you know, sometimes. You have to have ways to interact with your opponent in best of one because when you're on the draw, 
you need to be able to catch up from behind. Now, we, we have a lot to get to in this show, but I do want to just press one more question on you because I haven't really gotten to talk to you or watch any of your streams this week. Now, that that like duality, dichotomy, whatever of I need to have a good curve and pressure my opponent slash I also need some late game value. Do you feel like that's maybe a little different in best of three where you're, you're building your deck more with optimism and you're like, hey, I don't really care about, I'm not trying to like get to my Kazandu Stomper, pick something up in my red green landfall beats deck, or I'm not really trying to recur a couple threats in my red black party deck i just want my opponent to be dead by then do you feel like there's a little difference there or not really i do think there is because of how the games play out in best of one i think even in your aggressive decks the games go a little later and a little longer because both people are playing stuff out always all the time so because of best of one trading resources so much i think cards like thwart the grave and blood beckoning are better than they are i guess so those those card evals do change for me a little bit and maybe i'm just undervaluing those in best of three as well yeah, that's super, super interesting. Well, again, congrats on the Mythic grind and enjoy your uh, your gift of being able to not play best of one anymore. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So this week we we're talking about sequencing. I think there's a lot to discuss about sequencing and limited in general, but Zendikar Rising really adds a whole nother maybe three or four layers to that puzzle that I'm excited to sort of talk about in the abstract. And then, of course, in Lords of Limited fashion, we're going to have a lot of in-game decisions uh, that we'll have drawn from our, our own gameplay this past week to look at. But before we get into that, a few housekeeping things. First things first, our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where you can go to get back to the show. If you so choose, there are some perks there along the way for any of the tiers that you decide to join at. Uh, everybody, though, gets access to the Lords of Limited Discord and gets shouted out on this show. So this week, we are going to be welcoming to the fold Robert, Andrew, Adam, Astbjorn, Peter, Banjo, Sean, Christopher, and Matthew. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. Discord is gas still this far into the format. Just checking in on what's the pick, what's the play, what's the build. I learn stuff every time I hop on in there. In addition to the Patreon, this podcast is now also brought to you in part by Channel Fireball. There's a lot going on at Channel Fireball these days. Headliner, Magic Fest in a box. I will say, as far as COVID happening, there's a lot you know, going on in the world right now that's way more important than GPs and Magic Fest. I miss being able to go to a GP and see you or see Alex, you know, the team GP that would have been in Seattle in June. So it was a drag not getting to go. Yeah, I had really started to like, I don't know, sometime last year, gear up and be like, I kind of want to do this a little more. I mean, that was the impetus of us going to GP New Jersey at the beginning of this year. And I was sort of starting to plan out like, maybe I can afford to travel to you know, maybe three or four of these a year. And that would have been really fun. And of course, I decided to do that in 2020. <laughs> yeah. And if you've been missing those magic tabletop events as much as we have, now's a great time to recapture that Magic Fest experience with the return of Magic Fest in a box. So for $99.99 over at channelfireball.com, you can get a Magic Fest in a box. And each one contains a bunch of goodies that you would get at a Magic Fest, including a playmat, you know, a commander-sized deck box, a lot of promos, some soul rings, some path to exiles, some lightning bolt promos, stuff that you can't get uh, other places easily. So if you're looking to upgrade a commander deck, things like that, Magic Fest in a Box is a great way to do that. Also, great gifts for your Magic playing friends. Yeah, for sure. We're, we're approaching the season of giving, Ben. Absolutely. In addition, there's also CFB Pro Showdown tournaments happening over at CFB. So if you're a CFB Pro member, and if you're not, you should get on over there. There's great limited content. Uh, and make sure when you do that you use code LOL to sign up to let CFB know that we sent you over there. And that goes for when you purchase anything from ChannelFireball.com. We would really appreciate you using that code. But these CFB Pro tournaments, are we going to be seeing you slaying in one of them now that you're mythic constructed we'll see we'll see if they'll accept my participation to uh to jump in front as it were as one of the bounties yeah that would be sweet 
Yeah. All right. So let's let's dive right in. As I said, we got a lot to cover here talking about sequencing in Zendikar Rising. I think that sequencing and planning out a game from your opening hand are two of the more difficult skills to master in magic, right? I think it's one of those things that you have to work hard at, and then it becomes a sort of second nature thing where you have a lot of like shortcut heuristics, etc. And I was sort of thinking, this format feels like it's a lot more difficult to do that than normal. And it's because we have modal double face cards, party, kicker, and landfall, I think that makes the difficulty of those decisions get magnified quite a bit. Has that been your experience as well? Yes, absolutely. And you know, we've been talking recently about mind drain a lot. Mm -hmm. That card, 100%, I think what you were talking about last week on the podcast, I really experienced in best of one, lands matter and spells matter. So that card always gets two cards that matter, which is really tough to deal with in this format. And I tried to pick it and people are picking it really highly. Never see it. Wow. Okay. All right. Yeah. I think I think Mind Drain's got to go up. Maybe that's best of one specifically. I'm not sure, but it has gotten me quite a bit. So let's talk about some some general sequencing stuff in terms of lands in this format. So there's a lot of stuff to consider normally in terms of, you know, understanding mana requirements of your deck. Do you have a double-costed card on turn two or a double-costed card on turn three, like something that's, do you have black-black on two or one red-red on three? You want to make sure you have that ability to cast. You can often get, you can often fumble or get punished by not thinking about that in your opening hand. That's just sort of general. But MDFCs just throw like a whole giant wrench into the mix. If they're in your opener, you have to decide, right? We talk about in deck building, you don't need to decide, right? They're, they're a land and a spell, whatever. You can count them as both. And then as your hand dictates in each game, you get to decide what you want them to be. If they're in your opener, you want to decide if you need to play it as a land, if you can cast it as a spell, or that third option, do you have some number of turns before you have to make that decision? Yeah, absolutely. And we've been talking about in best of one, do the MDFCs go down in value because of the hand smoother? That has not been true for me. I value those the exact same way I think in best of three as I do in best of one, which is lower than we did earlier in the start of the format, but still very much enjoyed having two to three MDFCs in all of my best of one decks. Yeah. And then as you make that decision of, okay, can I delay uh, till turn two, till turn three, I have one draw step, two draw step before I have to decide what I need this MDFC to be, which side I want to play it as, how badly will that decision to wait impact your ability to curve out? That's a, a big decision, I think, in terms of what your opening hand dictates and slash, I think, what your deck's game plan is. The more important it is for you to curve out, I think the more likely you are to want to just play that on turn one tapped and make sure you it doesn't cause you to fumble down the road. I have a question for you. Uh-oh. Do you when you make a mistake with the MDFCs, do you tend to make your mistake as playing them out before you should? Or do you have uh, do you have a tendency to wait as long as possible? I, uh, this question implies that I'm making mistakes with them. That's, that's <laughs> well, I'm, so, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Excuse me, my lord. <laughs> no, uh, I think I think I am uh, much more likely to play these out as lands. I am I think I'm pretty conservative with them. And I think sometimes I don't take a riskier line in terms of I want to delay a couple turns and then that often will cause me to flood out in, in times when I'm like, hey, dang, I wish I had this Umara wizard to now play on on turn five or whatever. Right. And I think I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. And I think there's probably, you know, we're, we're representative of the general magic population. I think there's probably different sides of the fence that you fall on, but I definitely have a tendency to try to eke out value from mine and get punished curving out. So my heuristic for myself, and depending on which type of person you are, you want to end up with a different heuristic. But my heuristic for myself is when I faced with a tough spot, I should try to fight against my nature and err on the side of just playing it out and sucking it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think the other consideration to playing them out 
early is, you know, if the more ways you have to pick them back up, the more inclined you should be to play them out as lanes. We'll look at a couple uh, decisions later on in the episode where I think that's going to come into play. But I think also oftentimes that doesn't necessarily matter unless it's like a a super crucial one where you're like, I really wish I I'm really going to want to have this effect later on. Perhaps then if you don't have a way to pick it up, you shouldn't. But you know, the more Raptors, Hellions and Stompers you have, I think the more likely you should be to just play these out on one as a tap land. Absolutely. So beyond MDFCs, we've got Landfall and Kicker both playing roles in terms of holding lands and playing out lands. You want to talk about that? Yeah, I think for kicker, you should really take into account where the non-flexible cards in your hand slot in along your curve. So for example, if you have a turn timber ascetic in hand, that has to come down on five, right? And then if you've got that in the same hand as a gnarled colony, maybe that encourages you to play out your gnarled colony as a 2-2 because you know you can't play out both of those cards, you know, curving out for example. So just how your kicker spells line up and give you flexibility so that you maximize curving out as smoothly as possible. Yeah, for sure. For landfall, I think, you know, this is rare, as we talked about last week, like I think that the aggro landfall decks come together very rarely. But if you have one of those decks, or you have the potential for a sort of explosive turn, it may be better for you to to hold on to a land so you can go like, you know, land drop, roiling regrowth, get those triple landfall triggers in one turn, that sort of thing. Or if we're thinking about just individual landfall creatures, I think it's really interesting with something like Prowling Felidar. Do you play that out on turn four or do you wait and have that be your turn five play with a land? And I think then now we get into considerations of what is your opponent doing? So if you're playing against a red opponent, maybe you want to get it out of Royal Eruption range. So you wait until turn five to get a land drop so that it's a three, four rather than a two, three, you know, territorial scythe cat. Maybe you wait until turn four against an opponent who has access to subtle strike so that you get it out of that X one kill range, you know? Yeah. Those sorts of things have been huge for me in best of one. The other thing that keeps coming up for me in best of one, and I'm curious to see where you fall on this. Speaking of Royal eruption is I'm playing red frequently, which wants to beat down. And I find myself often, you know, when you're on the draw or whatever, having a choice to remove your opponent's creature or advance your board and then use your removal spell later. And I found myself tending to play to the board and then try to use my removal spell later because I want to beat down. So ultimately, holding that removal spell and developing the board early lets me ultimately, even at the cost of taking hits to my own life points, lets me leverage that removal spell to push damage then and sort of flip the script around on my opponent. I think it just, again, I mean, it's so situational, right? It's so dependent on what your hand is, what your deck is, what your opponent is doing, has the potential to do. Just sort of thinking initially, like if if you've got a grow tag bug catcher type of start, then I think you're much more inclined to say like, look, I, I'm going to race you. I can set up for an explosive turn where I get to flip the script on who's the beatdown if you're on the draw, if that's what the situation you're describing. Whereas maybe if I've got a Fisher Wizard as my turn to play, I'm going to be much more inclined to play that out, but then be looking to trade off and, and go to the mid to late game, that sort of thing. Right, for sure. Speaking of, you know, talking about party decks, sequencing party is also very tricky. When you're curving out, it's really important to think about curving out with types and not boneheadedly playing creatures post-combat when you have a grow tag bug yeah. catcher on the battlefield. You said <laughs> it's not, that sounds like you're speaking from experience. Oh, absolutely. Have you done that yet? <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's an immediate facepalm because you're trying to do you're trying to be a good magic player and then it just bites you in the butt. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, just figuring out the order of cards like Grotag Bugcatcher, you know, your your Malakir Blood Priest, your Acquisition Expert, those sorts of things can be the difference of winning or losing a game with those decks. And in addition to how you're curving out, knowing when you can afford to trade off with your opponent's yeah. creatures and when you can't. Like early on in the format, 
the mistakes I made the most with party were just blindly trading because I was like, okay, this is a two drop and a two drop. That's fine. I'll take that trade. But when you're playing with a party deck, all two drops are not created equal, right? If you've got your lone wizard, it's just a lot more valuable to try to leave that on the battlefield than it is to trade it off your opponent's random two drop. I had a super interesting game a few weeks ago where, you know, it looked like a very unwinnable game, but I clocked my opponent. I had two seafloor stalkers. My opponent was at 12 and I sort of like figured out that I could maybe do double activation, double activation to kill them over those two turns. But then it was super important that along the way, I realized which creature types I could afford to trade off and which I couldn't to keep that activation at three mana rather than four mana. 100%. Yeah, so that sort of thing, I think it really can come to bite you in the butt. And and, and even as a sub-theme here of one of the tribal decks, I think I've found a lot of interesting sequencing with rogues decks if you have a lot of the like eight cards in opponent's graveyard matters type deals. Because then you're, you're in this puzzle of trying to count backwards from eight for that crucial turn where like you know your your three fours are now four fours with menace or now your soaring thought thief is pumping your whole team or whatever type deal now your relic golem can attack that kind of thing timing of glacial grasps zulaport duelists etc i think is very very important i agree two things i want to pick your brain about here i think duelist is gas in best of one how do you feel about that i think i just agree without the caveat of best of one i've really liked that card a lot because of its flexibility not only in the rogues deck it's quite good but then also in just party decks i think it's quite good and the more i started to think about it as a combat trick that left behind a body rather than just like this awkward thing like i think a lot of people just go oh i should play this out on turn one and i think that's very rarely correct Oh, yeah, 100%. Never. It's a it's a combat trick that leaves a 1-1 behind, but it's also a very powerful combat trick when it works. Right. Well, I mean, we're going to talk about this a little later, but the fact that there's three things for a single blue mana at common that all are differently tricky to play around, I think makes the format complex and just gives blue another like incredible power boost, you know? As if it weren't good enough. All right, my, my other question for you, I'm pretty off of Relic Golem being a good card in best of one, I think. The games are so, so, so fast that it not being online until later in the game is a huge liability. I, I'm going to I'm gonna have to go fiction on that one. Okay. But uh, I don't think I have enough experience. You know, I, the, the amount of like nutty rogues deck I've played has to be like, I don't know, less than five. Like that deck comes together rarely for me when it's super good. And when it is good, I think Relic Golem is just gas. Well, or I guess not that Relic, right. Not that Relic Golem is not a good card, but that you shouldn't, it, it, it does not incentivize me to draft blue black, I guess the way Relic Amulet yes. incentivizes me to try to build around it or the way Relic Vile incentivizes me. There's a very clear notch before those three cards were kind of equal in my head, the clerics, the wizards and the rogues and, and the golem is now like firmly below the other two to me. I think that speaks more to the fact that the the other three tribal decks, Wizards, Clerics, and Warriors, can come together without their signpost on common, right? They have other things like Core Blade Master, or you get Relic Axe for Warriors, or for Wizards, you've got Relic Amulet, you've got Umara Wizard, you've got Umara Mystic, like you've got these other things that care about that tribal thing. The difference between the rogues decks that have Thought Thief and the ones that don't is huge. Yeah, I don't know if you've experienced this or not yet, but there's also the blue-black decks that have Tazim Royal Mage and Blood Beckoning, and that loop is really, really powerful. It's more of a, you can do it in a rogues deck, but also just sort of a blue-black party grind deck, but I have found that to be very effective in best of one at common. Yeah, I like other flavors of blue-black for sure. I'm 
just those dedicated rogue decks, I think without Thought Thief really, you know, are, are just quite a, a few notches below the others. For sure. So getting back to sequencing, opening hands, I think, you know, this is again, not unique to this format. You really want to make sure you have a plan for what your hand is going to do and be aware if that plan lines up with what you think your deck's game plan is. So we'll look at some opening hands later down the road. And I think I just want to encourage folks to really start thinking, you look at your opening hand and and have an idea of what the first three to four turns are going to look like for you. And then also have with MDFCs in particular, you have to have these sort of asterisks of, okay, but what if my next two draws are lands? What if my next two draws are spells? How does that impact it? And then also what is my opponent doing and how does that impact the plays that I'm making? So thinking back to this idea of what your deck's game plan is, you know, I think about this a lot in best of one, if you're an aggressive deck, Right. I mean, it's pretty clear if you've got no play until turn four, you know, you may want to mulligan or maybe you've got some removal spells or something along the way. And you may just want to change how you think you're going to approach the game based on that opening hand. If it has some disruption, then maybe you're just not the beat down and you you change gears a little bit. I think I'm much more inclined to even I mean, this situation is a, a little clear cut, but even so, like without a two drop on the play, if I'm an aggro deck in best of one, I'm inclined to mulligan those hands a lot of the time. I agree. I think. Best of one, it has this weird dichotomy of you don't want to mulligan because there's this thing in your brain that says like, this is your only chance. Like you have to have all your cards to try to win the game. I have found that it goes better for me when I have sketchy hands or scans that are borderline, you know, not curving out or need to hit, you know, a, your second color or whatever to to curve out. I have found that erring on the side of mulliganing more has helped me out as I've played more best of one. Yeah, I, I think so. And I, so I would just encourage folks, not that you need to go crazy mulliganing or whatever, but just thinking about your your game plan. And I think especially in best of one, when you can anticipate that your opponent's probably going to have a good draw, that if your draw doesn't do what your deck is trying to do, that, that perhaps you can afford to go to six more often than not. Right. It's closer, you know, if you're thinking about the delta between best of three and constructed, as far as like mulliganing, you know, you want to mulligan aggressively constructed best of one somewhere in the middle. Along. Yeah, like you don't, you don't want to be crazy, but you should be mulling in best of one, I think more than you mull in best of three. So we talked about modal double face cards in your opening hand, right? That decision of, is, am I planning to play this out as a land? Am I planning to play this out as a spell? Or if I've got a few turns, how many turns do I have? And what are those draws going to look like that would decide whether or not I want to play this out as a land or a spell on turn three or etc. But that's not the only consideration for modal double face cards in games, right? Right, absolutely. There's spots where you end up in the mid game, you know, on turn five, turn six, whatever, where you have a choice to, you know, play them as a land to definitely play your six drop on time or whatever, or, you know, hope you draw a land and then then you get to play out your six drop and your MDFC, right? So being greedy versus ensuring that you can curve out. And I think there's just things that you need to ask yourself when you're in that spot. And the first question I would ask yourself is, how long do I expect the game to go? And if the game's going to go a lot longer, maybe that incentivizes you to try to be a little greedy so that you get, you know, the value out of both of those cards. And if the game's going to end a little sooner, maybe you play that MDFC so that you can definitely play that next card on curve or you can double spell that next turn or whatever. And I think the even other more interesting question to ask yourself is by playing this MDFC as a tap land and ensuring that I get a double spell next turn or ensuring that I get to, you know, play my six drop this very next turn or whatever the case is, can I artificially then end the game sooner because I had that good thing happen for my sequencing? And if that's the case, that's even more of an incentive to try to not go for the greedy value play. Yeah, I think the greedy value play is so appealing with these kinds of 
cards? Because you think about, you can sort of put yourself in this spot where you're like, well, I'm in a position where lands or spells are good draws for me, right? I draw a land that's untapped and then I get to play my six drop on time or I draw a spell and then I get to maybe play that or play one of these other spells in my hand. I think that's going to get you into trouble a bit more often than you think because you're not quite understanding the power of guaranteeing. I think you and I say this a lot, this like idea of I guarantee I get to play the six drop on time or by playing this MDFC on turn one, I get to guarantee that I go two drop, three drop, four drop. Where is it likely that I'm going to draw an untapped land in those three draw steps? Yeah, but it's possible that that doesn't happen. And the times, the, the fail cases of that, I think so far outweigh those times where you're just like, cool, I get this little bit of extra value because now I still have this land as a spell in my hand. Right. And by, you know, taking that time off and saying, well, a land or a spell is good. Sure. Is it playable? Absolutely. Are you going to be able to make plays? For sure. But you're also, by not making the most powerful play you can, giving your opponent more wiggle room and more time to potentially turn things around. Right. The difference between landing that that powerful six drop on time versus going, well, whatever, I get to play it a turn later, is perhaps the difference between your opponent getting to play something that answers that, that can block it. Your opponent now gets to turn the tide in terms of they get to play a larger monster that now you're on the back foot against. You know, like there's a lot that gets packed into that one seemingly small decision. 100%. Last thing here I want to talk about is uh, about responding to and anticipating your opponent. So, you know, it's you're not playing solitaire here, right? We're not just goldfishing. You have to simultaneously have a plan based on what's in your hand and then be reevaluating that plan based on what your opponent does. So I think this is why it's so important to have this like ability to shortcut your opening hand in terms of saying, this is what I'm going to do turns one through four so that each draw step or each time your opponent does something, then you're only having one little calibration, right? You only have to reevaluate based on that rather than going, okay, wait, well, now what's in my hand? What am I going to do next turn? Right? You already had a plan for that. So I think anticipating your opponent's plays is incredibly important. I, I, I do this a lot. My, my one thought for this is like, you know, by my opponent's turn four, I expect that like a 2-2 two -two is going to be invalid on the board, even if it's not currently, right? Let's say they don't currently have something that, that can deal with it, I'm going to anticipate that they will have that. And so then that may make me feel more inclined to say, look, maybe I save this. Maybe I'm not playing Gnarled Colony on three. Maybe instead I'll just take turn three off and play field research, draw a couple cards, and then try and play out something on four and then kick Gnarled Colony on turn five. Yes, I agree with that. But there's also, I think, you know, speaking back to best of one, there's also something to be said for having multiple small bodies so that you can gang up and multi-block some larger creature from your opponent. I, I worry about not playing to the board often in best of one when you have the option to. Yeah, I think that's that's totally fair. Again, I'm, I'm saying like the state of the game, certainly maybe even, even the, the format you're playing best of one versus best of three is going to dictate when those decisions are right. You know, I think I think Tazim Royal Mage may be a better example, you know, like that that's just not going to be a powerful thing. And I'm, I'm quite averse, especially in best of one, I would I would hope I would be averse to double blocking and, and until it's my like very last choice that I can make. I, I would hope to not double block in this format. For sure. And I think, you know, speaking a little bit more about what your opponent's doing, you can start anticipating what your opponent is going to have based on what archetype they're playing. For example, you would expect a blue black deck to have Soaring Thought Thieves. You'd expect them to have Zulaport Duelists. You might even, if depending on how your opponent's setting up the game state, expect them to have Zerathsan, mm. right? That sort of thing, keeping in mind all of the range of cards your opponents can have and what that means for playing around it or wizards decks. You know, you're playing around minus four, minus O, draw a card, that sort of thing. 
Yeah. I, I mean, you know, thinking about they made a fishy attack on turn two. What does that mean? How do you then like save that information for a future turn? Talking about, again about Zulaport Duelist, I think you can go beyond to think about things about archetypes, right? There, there are three things to do with single blue in this format at common. And so depending on what my opponent's archetype is, I will sort of put them on one of those three. I will assume blue green kicker is going to have shell shield more than the other two. I'm going to assume blue red wizards has chilling trap more than the other two. And I'm going to assume that blue black rogues or blue white party has Zulaport duelist in that spot. And so trying to play around those cards accordingly based on what my opponent's doing, trying to take that information, anticipate what they're going to play and use that to my advantage. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, so let's let's stop talking in the abstract here and let's let's try and get into some specific gameplay decisions. Most of these are going to be opening hands, but we've got some some uh mid-game decisions as well. You want to kick us off here, Ben? Yeah, the first one here is a nice little blue black deck. Uh it's got a party sub theme. We've got a couple bubble snares, a vanquish, two deadly alliances are removal spells, triple field research. Uh we've got a relic amulet, we've got a couple pack beasts, a relic golem, a nice looking deck here. Um, and you see the following things as your opening hand. You've got seven cards. We haven't mulliganed. You've got Island, Bubble Snare, Jewari Disruption, Relic Amulet, Stonework Pack Beast, Field Research, and Black Bloom Rogue. So initially that might be concerning because you only see one land, but you do have two MDFCs in Jewari Disruption and Black Bloom Rogue. So I think the first thing to decide is whether this is a keeper mole. Where are you at there? Snap keep. Snap keep because you have three sources, right? Yeah. And then I think the fact that you have, you know, Black Bloom Rogue and Jawari Disruption, but Black Bloom Rogue is your only black source, makes it pretty clear that you're going to play Black Bloom Rogue turn one. That's your initial plan, right? But we're on the draw here. So you get to see what you draw before you make your turn one play. Um, and it turns out that we draw another land. We'd actually draw an island. But I still don't think that changes your play of curving out here with Black Bloom Rogue because you definitely want to guarantee yourself a black source. You don't have a black card in hand yet, but you want to, if you draw a black card, have that untapped black source to be able to have the the option to play the black card. Right. And your hand is just so full of gas that I think it's just important that you ensure you hit land drops. And, and how that's going to happen in this hand is by playing one of these two MDFCs on turn one. Right. So we slam Black Bloom Rogue on turn one. And then turn two, your opponent has gone ruin crab and land on their second turn so now we're on your turn two on the draw here and sort of again this is where sequencing changes with what your opponent's done because ruin crab is a huge threat right so all of a sudden in addition to curving out we have a new objective which is getting ruin crab off the battlefield as soon as possible and the only way we currently have in our hand to deal with that is relic amulet our new plan is get relic amulet down and start charging it up until we draw another way to deal with ruin crab if I can backtrack just for a second, I feel like it is maybe kind of important for us to talk about that idea of what's the plan with this opening hand real quick. So we talked about, you know, we definitely know we want to play Black Bloom Rogue on one. And then I think, you know, we're talk starting to, to fold in what your opponent is doing, which is playing Ruin Crab, which is a threat we feel like we need to get off the battlefield as soon as we can. But then also folding in what are we going to draw that will inform what we can do, right? We have options on turn two in terms of we could, if we're drawing, you know, basic into basic, then maybe we want to go turn two, pass with Jawari disruption open on turn two to counter your opponent's turn three play but now we think 
well, maybe we just want to get Relic Amulet down as soon as possible on turn two to get three counters on it so we can get this crab off the board. Yeah, I think in general, looking at my opening hand, even before I see what my first draw step is, my plan is to get Relic Amulet down anyway, just because there's so much value in charging that up. And we have three cards in our hand that do that in the Jawari Disruption, the Pack Beast, and the Field Research. Right. And then on turn three, you have the option of, you know, if you don't draw a land, then you get to go Pack Beast, Trigger Amulet, Play Disruption, Tapped. Or if you draw a land, then maybe you're just going Field Research to draw a couple cards to give you the possibility of maybe double spelling on turn four with Pack Beast and a Jawari Disruption. You know, you've got a lot of options down the road. Yes, absolutely. So rewinding back to turn two here, we draw Master of Winds. And so I think we play Island so that we can get down Relic Amulet. And then the next turn, we're planning to probably play Pack Beast and Jawari Disruption as a tapped land would be my guess, so that we're hitting land drops and are able to play our spells and curve out as best as possible to charge up Relic Amulet. Yeah. For sure. All right, I want to hop on over to one of mine here. This this might seem a little straightforward, but I think is important to talk about here. So we've got a sort of classic Ethan uh, Jund MDFC pile deck here. I think maybe this is one of our roundtables from uh, a, a week or so ago. Um, but, you know, just a, a lot of ways to pick up MDFCs, two Stompers, a Hellion, triple Reclaim the Wastes, as is my style here. Um, and you see the following opening hand. Um, three lands, Forest, Mountain, Mountain, as well as an MDFC in Kazul's Fury. Uh, you've got a rare Magmatic Channeler, the two-drop, one-three Wizard. Tajuru Snarecaster, the three-mana, one-four Reach. And Rockslide Sorcerer, the four-mana, three-three. Uh, when you cast Wizard, Instant Sorcery, it pings something. Yeah, so there's a lot of things to think about with this opening hand, right? You have a nice curve in Magmatic Channeler into Snarecaster into Rockslide Sorcerer, but it's not necessarily guaranteed, right? Unless you choose to play Kazool's Fury out on turn one. Right. And I think there's a lot of, so we can just, maybe let's just assume that this hand is on the play here. I think there's a lot of folks that might go, look, you're going to draw a land in the next three draw steps, right? So you can afford to just go Channeler on two, Snarecaster on three. And then even, even if you don't, how bad is it for you to go whatever. Along the way, you will have maybe drawn another two drop or a three drop. You get to go play that and then play Fury tapped then and then play Sorcerer on five. Like, how bad is that really? I think it's costly. I agree. And so I think that leads you to want to play Kazool's Fury down on turn one. And it changes also if you have Hellions and Stompers, right? If you don't have Hellions and Stompers, maybe there's more of a case for holding Fury. But mm-hmm. I still think I would err on the side of playing the Fury out because you're going to want to curve out. You have this Magmatic Channeler to prevent Flood. And that's one of the reasons that you would try to hold Kazool's Fury, right? Because you're worried about flooding out or whatever. You want to try to maximize your spells. Mm-hmm. So Channeler lowers that risk a little bit. So even if you don't have Stompers and Hellions, I think it's powerful enough to know that you're going to be able to go two, three, four, that you play Kazool's Fury out on turn one. And I think in those times where you're assuming, eh, I'll draw a land in the next two or three draw steps, it doesn't always happen, right? It just doesn't. Yeah. I think, you know, Chandler maybe throws a wrench into this a little bit where it's like, well, you know, at, at what's the worst thing that happens on turn four? You can probably use Chandler to pitch Kazool's Fury and draw into a land and then play Sorcerer on time. But, I, you know, leaving that ability aside, I think just in, in a vacuum looking at the CMCs of two, three, four with three basics, I think you just want to play your MDFC tapped on turn one just to ensure that curve out because that curve out is very, very powerful. I agree. All right, next one here, we've got another opening hand from mine. We are again on the draw. This is blue-black again, but this is a different blue-black deck. So opening hand has two lands, Island Swamp, and we also have an MDFC in Jawari Disruption. And then we've got four cards in our opening hand. 
We've got a Shell Shield. We've got a Tazim Royal Mage, the two mana 2-1 with Kicker 4 to rebuy an instant sorcery. Cunning Geyser Mage, the two and a blue 3-2 with Kicker to bounce a creature. And Namana Sky Dancer, the two black 2-1 Flash Flyer. So in this opening hand on the draw, your plan right now as you're looking at the hand, I think is to play Jawara Disruption on turn one, right? To guarantee that you get to play Geyser Mage and Sky Dancer, right? Right. So that's the plan based on the seven cards. But you know you have a draw step to make that decision. And I think depending on what that draw step is, is going to influence whether or not you play this out on turn two. Right. So we end up drawing an island. And so that guarantees our three land drops to be able to hit our Geyser Mage and our Nemana Sky Dancer on curve if we want to. And I think ultimately you're hoping to save Tazim Royal Mage for six mana, right? If you, if you need to, a turn two play, you run Royal Mage out on turn two, but you're hoping to play it on turn six with Kicker to rebuy one of your removal spells or something. So the fact that we draw our third land here on our first draw step makes it so that we get to hold Jawara Disruption in hand and curve out with our basics and try to nab our opponent's turn three play on our turn two. So basically the like reveal of whether it's a land or a spell here, I think that's pretty binary in terms of if it's a spell, you're playing disruption out as a land. If you're drawing a land here, you're playing out that land and holding disruption, hoping to nab your opponent's three drop on the play. It's interesting if Jawari Disruption here is Umara Wizard instead, um, because I think even if you draw a basic there, you're probably still playing out the wizard as a tap land. I don't know, like, because you're, you're then thinking about, well, I want to get to land number six on time for this Royal Mage or this Geyser Mage, you know, like you've got other considerations here of like folding in Kicker as well. You see, like there's just so many, so many decision points. Yeah, there's a lot of layers. And I think even if you brick and you draw a spell here, you could think about being greedy. I just think it's wrong to be greedy in that way. Right. Because so what you could do is say, look, I draw a spell here. I'm going to delay the decision one more turn worst comes to worst on turn three but then you're probably then still on turn two playing out disruption which is awkward because then if you brick on a land then you're just way too far behind i think well so it's reasonable to give yourself one more turn to draw a land right because on turn two you can play disruption as a tap land and then still guarantee curving out on three right you just lose the power of having jewelry disruption up on turn two if you brick right I'm just so, like at that point, I feel like I'm I'm already the greed train has left the station and I feel like I got to hop on board, you know, and that's the other thing. These decisions compound themselves, right? When you make the wrong one, it affects you for multiple turns of the game. Yes, agreed. Yeah, Jawara Disruption in particular, I think is, is sneaky, difficult in that way. And I wonder if a lot of those like that sort of cheap one, Vastwood Fortification, that sort of thing, those get sort of written off because they're, you know, they're less clear in terms of, look, if that's Umara Wizard, you're just playing it tapped because there's no way you're getting to five mana. Like It's going to be very unlikely for you to draw three basics in the next whatever four draw steps. But something like Disruption, those cheap ones, they feel like, ah, I, I can wait one turn. I can wait two turns until I have to decide, you know? Right. All right. Next up, we're going to take a look at uh, an opening hand from a blue-red, not really anything deck. It's got a little party thing going on. We got some Stalkers and Spark Mages. It's really Squid Tribal here. Triple Skyclave Squid, one of my favorite cards cards here and five mdfcs and a hellion um so you know just just getting some some raw power there rather than a ton of tribal synergy your opening hand is island island mountain again that pesky jawari disruption as well as umara wizard and double skyclave squid yeah this is interesting here right my initial inclination when looking at this hand we were discussing this before the show a little bit was to 
just slam Jawara Disruption on turn one as a tap land so that you guarantee going squid into squid and you're trying to maximize your chances of hitting land drops to play your more impactful spell in Umara Wizard. But I think there's a lot more going on here. Yeah, so I think there's arguments for playing Disruption along the curve at any point. I think there's also arguments for playing Umara Wizard on on turn one as well, though that I feel less like I want to do. Like in my mind, I'm looking at this hand and I'm going, Umara Wizard is a spell. I've already got three lands with the potential for a fourth in disruption. So I have to imagine by the time I want to play Wizard on five, I'm going to have that fifth land. And so then the question becomes along the way, where does disruption slot in, right? I think you could go basic, basic, squid on two. And then on turn three, you could decide, all right, I'm going to play this squid and play disruption as a tap land. But if you're drawing lands along the way, then I think there's potential to say, look, I want to go squid on turn two, squid on turn three. And then on turn four, I can hold up disruption. Or maybe you draw a three drop along the way and you go squid on two, three drop, and then turn four, you get to go skyclave squid and hold up two mana for disruption. Or maybe that's the turn where you have to decide you're going to play disruption as a land. There's a lot of spots for the decision of what disruption is going to do for you in this game. I think the most optimal thing you could do after talking through it with you is to go basic, basic squid. And then on turn three, you reevaluate again whether or not you want to play disruption as a tap land because it fits so nicely on your curve after playing the second squid on turn three, right? Mm -hmm. Like that you go basic, basic squid, and then on turn three, you play squid, and then you either play disruption as a tap land there, if you feel like you're not going to be able to use it, or, you know, you've drawn some basics, and then you feel like you get a hold disruption for a spell a little bit later in the game. I think that's the best thing to do with the hand. Yeah, I I think that's true. Um, But but this is, I think this is my knee jerk conservative reaction is I think my, my gut is like just play disruption on one don't get cute right but i think you're you are missing out on a little bit of power and flexibility if you do that i think i agree all right next one here we've got a green white splashing a spoils of adventure a little splish splash green white mdfc deck going on um but this isn't my deck this is your deck I know. <laughs> What's going on? Believe it or not, I play these decks too. <laughs> There's some fun on my side of the battlefield sometimes. Okay, okay. Uh, so not super relevant what our opponent's side of the battlefield is. We're just a little further in the game here. Um, so they've. this is our turn three. Uh, we're again on the draw. Never lucky in best of one. No, of course not. So our opponent has curved out Gomafada Vanguard into Marasa Brute. So a 2-2 two, two and a 3-3. Three, three. And our side of the battlefield, we curved out with a Luminarch Aspirant. So I guess we're sometimes lucky. That's the white rare that puts a counter on something at the beginning of combat. And we've got Plains Forest on the battlefield. Our hand has two more lands in it. It's got a Plains and a Forest in hand as well. And then an MDFC in Balagad Recovery. So potential to have our fifth land if we so choose. And the rest of the cards in our hand are Spoils of Adventure, the blue, white, gold, uncommon. Turn Timber Ascetic, the 5-mana five 5-4 five, Cleric that gains you 3 when it ETBs. Tajuru Paragon, a 1 and a green 3-2 with Kicker 3, and if you kick it, you get a dig for other party members to draw. And Myriad Construct, the 4-mana four 4-4 four, four, that if it gets targeted by a spell, um, you sacrifice it and make 1-1s one, equal to its power. Yeah, this is, again, I think <laughs> the phrase of the episode is going to be guarantees curving out, guarantees hitting land drops, right? There's, there's the clear-cut guarantee play here, which is to this turn you play Paragon for two mana and play Balagad Recovery tapped, which then ensures that you get to play Construct on four and turn Timber Ascetic on five. But you could get greedy here, right? You could just play Ascetic out here, play a basic, play Construct on four, and then fingers crossed that you draw an untapped land 
and get to play a Seticon 5 so that you now still have Balaged Recovery as a spell side in your hand to rebuy something down the road. Right. I think the, the question is, do you think the game's going to go that long? And do you think Balaged Recovery is going to be that important? And I think if you look right now, you've got powerful cards in hand, right? You don't need Balaged Recovery to rebuy your stuff. Yes, you're going to be trading off likely because your opponent's going to be attacking you and you want to stop their offense like you're a little bit behind right now you probably will be able to use balaged recovery to some effect but it makes it so that your hand is awkward keeping balaged recovery and like when are you using balaged recovery right it's going to be like four or five turns from now looking at your hand best case scenario right so i think the better thing to do is just to suck it up play it out know you get to go two drop this turn four drop five drop and then you just don't have to stress about drawing a land. You guarantee yourself powerful plays. And the only way you get punished is somehow if you magically flood out from this point and don't draw blue mana to be able to cast Spoils of Adventure. And I think that's pretty unlikely. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Balaget Recovery here feels a little more straightforward to me to play it out tap just because it's such a slow card and your hand has the potential, this, this curve out of two drop, two drop, four drop, five drop. And especially with that little life gain buffer of Turn Timber Aesthetic, that could be enough to like flip the script and allow you, you're not only putting a body on the board, but you're gaining enough life that perhaps that is gonna let you take the lead in terms of who's the beatdown in this matchup. It's interesting if it's something like Kabira Takedown or Colony Ambush in that spot, because that's a much more compelling card for me to want to go, ooh, but if after I go two drop, two drop, four drop, five drop, I have this cheap removal spell, now I'm really maybe a little bit more enticed to get greedy. I still think it's incorrect, but it, it changes it. It's a lot closer for me if it's one of those cards. I agree, but I still think you're playing it. I think if you took, just as a thought experiment, if you took all five cards in your hand and none of them were MDFCs and you had the ability to randomly make one of them an MDFC, you would choose to do that and you would play it out as a tap land, right? Mm -hmm. You've got powerful cards in hand, but the ability to turn one of your cards in hand into a land, it should feel good that you get to do that. It should feel good that you get to guarantee and for some reason, it doesn't always, right? Because there's <laughs> because there's that little voice that says, but you could play this sweet spell. Right. And we're so conditioned to hate Flood, you know? Mm, yeah, that's very, very true. Next up, we've got uh, two here from a black-green counters deck. I just drafted this uh, two days ago. It was so many black-green counters payoffs and literal no removal. Bit, bit of a yikes, but lots of like, I got Moss Pit Skeleton, Double Skyclave Shadow Cat, Iridescent Horn Beetle, Double Gnarlet Colony, Double Territorial Scythe Cat, Double Hogger Constrictor, Double Swarm Shambler in the one-drop slot. Um, so definitely got there with the other respects, just just not got getting there with removal. So the opening hand you look at here is a doozy. We've got Swamp, Forest as your basic lands. You've got Palaka Predation and Balaged Recovery as your MDFCs. And then you've got Gnarled Colony, Marasa Sproutling, and Iridescent Horn Beetle to round out the spells. Yeah, I think this is a super interesting one here, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different considerations. One, Gnarled Colony's modal, right? You can play it as a two or a five. I think the fact that we don't have any other twos leads me to want to play Gnarled Colony out on turn two, right? You also have Marasa Sproutling in hands where if you play Gnarled Colony out as a two and then trade it off, you have the Sproutling potentially on five to rebuy it. So I think, you know, if we're trying to curve out as efficiently as possible, the, the best curve I see is Gnarled Colony on two, predation on three but then there's even you even have the option to play predation as a land if you need it so i think what i would do with this hand is i would play balagad recovery on one 
again, because that's such a late game card, it's so much easier to run that one out as a land. Mm-hmm. So I think you just play that, and then you play Swamp Gnarled Colony on turn two, and then on turn three, you reevaluate, but initially you're planning to play Predation on three, but if you're bricking on lands, then maybe you play Sproutling as a 3-3, three, three, and you play Predation as your fourth land drop. You know, you've already guaranteed yourself worst-case scenario going two drop, three drop, and you have a lot of optionality to re- reevaluate, you know, on your, your turn four. There's one more thing I want to throw out here. So we've got, you know, we've got a couple modal cards with Colony and Sproutling as can be a two or a three drop, but can also be a five drop. But you've also got Iridescent Hornbeetle, which isn't modal, right? And so that also makes me feel more inclined to not only want to hit land drops, but to play those out rather than trying to go go for the value, kick them on turn five, I'm probably going to play these out on curve more likely than not because I know I have something that has to come down on turn five. It doesn't have an, uh, another option. But the thing that I want our listeners to, to take away from this is listen to everything Ben is doing is mapping out his hand, right? He's going, okay, so this is my plan. I'm looking at the hand and I go, recovery as a land on one, colony on two, hoping to probably play predation on three, get some value from Sproutling later, Horn Beetle's going to be on five. But every step of the way, he's saying, if I brick on lands or if I'm hitting lands, I do X. But then also, if my opponent is maybe beating down, well, then that makes me want to play Sproutling out on three. If they're not, maybe I have time to play this predation to eat their hand. There's just so many considerations, but you're planning not only for what you're going to do based on what's here, but what's coming from the top of your library and what's coming from your opponent's side of the battlefield. Right. Uh, Constructed Resources, uh, just to plug um, another podcast, I just started listening a few weeks ago, but they did an episode on how to play like a pro. And my biggest takeaway from that episode was that having options is powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's what these MDFCs do for you. They give you flexibility to do different things depending on wh- how the game's progressing and what you're drawing. And that that optionality is powerful. Yeah. I want to take a look at one other hand here from this black green deck. Uh, so this one is uh, three lands, Swamp Forest Forest, as well as a Malakir Rebirth as an MDFC. And then along the curve, we've got a Gnarled Colony, a Territorial Scythe Cat, and a Hagra Constrictor. So I think there are three questions that I want to pose to you from this hand. Uh, One is, do you play Colony on two? Which of these three drop creatures do you play first? And are you playing Rebirth as a land? There's a lot to unpack here. I mean, there's just a lot of options. And it's hard to know without progressing a little further in the game to see what your opponent's doing. But I think my initial reaction with three lands and these cards would be that I want to try to hold Rebirth as a land. So I think my plan initially would be to play Colony on two, and then I would be planning to, I think, play Hagra Constrictor on three, so that on turn four, I could play Scythe Cat plus a land to make it a three, two. I've just found in general, I prefer playing Scythe Cat when I have the ability to make a land drop. So that's a little bit more relevant card mm-hmm. when it comes down to the battlefield. So that would be my my gut reaction is that I want to hold rebirth and go colony into constrictor into worst case scenario, play scythe cat on three Malakir rebirth on four uh, as my fourth land drop to grow the scythe cat. Um, if I feel like I need to hit land drops. Constrictor makes this super interesting, I think, because I'm with you with the respect of like, I want to play Scythe Cat and then have a land drop to give. But knowing that I can go Scythe Cat on three, Constrictor land drop on four, and then Scythe Cat has Menace as a three, two, makes it feel more likely that it'll get through for three points of damage, which is enticing to me. And then the other end of the spectrum here is 
I, you know, you're right about there's a lot more to, to consider here. But I think if if I'm looking at this hand and trying to think about what I'm hoping is going to happen, I think I'm hoping I get to play Colony on turn five. And so I'm not excited about running this out on, on turn two just to dangle it. Like being able to play that as a five mana four four with Menace with Constrictor on the board seems pretty appealing to me. Oh, I don't think I'm ever not running Colony out on turn two. That's interesting. Oh yeah, I, I, maybe I'm maybe I, I get a little too greedy here, but I'm 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 looking to hold it, especially with you know it's just tough because if you're hitting spells, then obviously you're going to play Rebirth Tapped, and you're going to have other stuff to do. But if you're if you're hitting lands with this hand, I think I would just rather because I know I'm going to go three drop something on turn four like Scythe Cat, and then something on turn five makes me feel like eh, what, what am I am I really missing out on that much by not having a bear on the board? I think you're it's tempting more tempting to do that if you're on the play yes. because it's not quite so punishing but if you're on the draw I don't know that would make me pretty nervous yeah you've got some some best of one PTSD my friend <laughs> maybe yeah all right we've got one more here which is a pretty complex board state so this is in the middle of the game we are on the play again playing blue black um, and again, we've got a Jawari disruption to deal with, but I promise these are not all the same deck, and I promise I play things other than blue-black. <laughs> uh, so opponent is on red-green, and they've been off to a fast start despite uh, you know us being on the play. So as it stands, it's our turn five. We have three islands and a swamp on the battlefield, as well as a seafloor stalker. Our opponent's battlefield is Mountain Mountain Forest. They have missed their fourth land drop. So we know that's interesting because they've got some landfall creatures and we know they don't have a land in hand. So their board is Tajuru Blightblade, the 1-1 one, one Death Touch, Marasa Sproutling, 3-3, three, three, and Territorial Scythe Cat as a 2-1 uh, that they have not been able to grow here because they've not had their fourth land drop. So their last turn was Rabbit Bite, and we saved our creature with Shell Shield. So it's our turn five. We've got those four lands and our Stalker on the battlefield, the 2-3 Rogue. Hand is Swamp. We just drew Jawari Disruption for the turn, and we've got Glacial Grasp, the two and a blue tap a creature. It doesn't untap. Uh, opponent mills two. We've got a Deadly Alliance that currently costs three and a black because we have a Rogue on the battlefield. We have Merfolk Falconer, the three blue blue four four flyer. And we've got Lull Mage's Domination in hand. Blue, 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 X, gain control of target creature with converted mana cost X. And X costs three less to cast if your opponent has eight or more creatures, eight or more cards in their graveyard, excuse me. So there's interesting things to unpack here. You've got a lot of options, right? Yes. You could go untapped land Merfolk Falconer and play a 4-4. And that I think is pretty appealing because the 4-4 holds back your opponent's whole team, even if they find a land drop, right? Even if they, you know, turn their Scythe Cat into a 3-2, assuming they don't have a way to put multiple lands on the battlefield, your Falconer holds down the battlefield. I think there is a better line here, though. And I ended up just playing land Merfolk Falconer. But I think the, the better line here is we're behind, right? Life totals are at, we're at 14, opponents at 20. So we are significantly behind here and we're trying, I think, to turn the speed of the game around. And so I think the thing that we can do best to do that is to play Deadly Alliance on your opponent's Marasa Sproutling or Territorial Scythe Cat, whatever you choose. I think I would do the Marasa Sproutling just because it's the bigger threat at the moment. And so you play Deadly Alliance to kill their 3-3 and then you play Jawari Disruption as a tapped land which then guarantees you on the following turn to be able to lull Mage's Domination their Scythe Cat or Sproutling, whichever you decided not to kill. And I think that is ultimately the the best way to get back in the game. But my I I played Falconer and just assumed I was going to hit my sixth land drop sometime in the near future, and that was not the case. I ended up losing, I think, because I didn't play Jawari Disruption as a tap land on this turn. 
I think there's a third option here that is slightly appealing to me based on the fact that we know our opponent's missing land drops, right? So they've got four cards in hand and we know it's all gas, is that you have the option here to go swamp as your fifth land and then pass, giving you the possibility of deadly alliance that would probably come at the end of the turn. So you would take at least probably four from Blightblade and Sproutling attacking, or you get to grasp something giving you another draw step to hit that six land on time. So you have the option of having Grasp and Jawari Disruption as a double spell this turn, which is slightly appealing to me because I think Disruption has a a likelihood of nabbing an actual spell here. Right. That's what messed me up this whole game. I thought my opponent was missing land drops. You know, I'm going to be able to get him with Disruption, and I just never could somehow. (laughs) Well, when when you're tapping out, I mean, I guess you still have the option to do it next turn, right? You play Falconer this turn, and then the following turn, you still have, you can pass with either Alliance or, actually now you get to, you can Alliance plus disruption if nothing dies because you have a wizard and a rogue in play right it was really appealing to play falconer this turn i think Mm -hmm. but just because i didn't guarantee myself that six land drop because i took the oh i'll draw the land route i ended up losing the game i think yeah that's super super interesting i don't know if that necessarily makes that play incorrect of the falconer yeah like i don't know the the most conservative line i can take from this spot is jewelry disruption tapped kill your thing and then no i have lull mage's domination yeah untap and steal another three drop yeah that is that is the most conservative line and then we still have Falconer plus Alliance. And I think I got, I got, I don't know. Yeah. So maybe it wasn't incorrect, but interesting to see that there, I don't even think I considered the option in the heat of battle. Interesting. Yeah. 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 I think that's, especially when it's a, one of these cheap ones, I think you get sort of stuck in this idea of, well, now it's the mid game and I'm, I'm, I have five lands already. I should try and get value out of this as a spell. But yeah, in the heat of battle, I think it's important to, to think about all those options. Right. You any, uh, you any hotter on this format? Or are you still, you're still just a, a little medium on it? I'm lukewarm on this format. I mean, it's good. Don't get me wrong. It's good. It's just not a top three all time for me. I think it's a, a very good format, like better than Rivals of Ixalan, better than, you know, whatever, Ravnica Allegiance, but it's below, definitely below Ikoria for me, definitely below War of the Spark for me, definitely below Cons. Yeah, that's fair. I'm still still hot on the Zendikar Rising Life. I think this format is gas. I do really enjoy the MDFCs. I think it's a little, here's, here's the thing, here's my complaint about it, is that I feel like the decks you draft are the same recipes all the time. And I don't think that there's a lot of interesting uncommons or rares that push you out of the same recipe for decks. I think that's mostly true, except I I think that the drafting is so interesting to me with tribal, party, MDFC value as like three things you're trying to like toe the line until you're not. And sure, sometimes it just works out that you get like the perfect, perfect of one of those. But I think more often than not, you're you're going to get into trouble if you're not navigating your way through those three things uh, effectively. I agree with that 100%. All right, great place to wrap us up. Thank you to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. As always, make sure you give it a listen. Thanks so much to Channel Fireball for sponsoring this podcast. If you're heading over to CFB for any and all things, signing up for CFB Pro, we highly recommend that. Um, buying any things at Magic Fest in a box, singles, packs, whatever, please use code LOL, all caps, at checkout to let them know we sent you there. You can check us out on Twitch and Twitter. Fall break is over for Ben, but perhaps we'll still see some twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome action. You can check out me at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later.
the Royal Mage Blood Beckoning at Common in Blueback is awesome. Blueback? <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can leave it, I can leave it in if you want. <laughs> no. I'll, just, I'll say it again. I was hoping no one knows. <laughs> 